nursing industry is one of the fastest growing career forces in the world today. There are so many issues in the healthcare field these days relating to nurses that simply are not discussed in the media. Welcome to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with Leanne Meyer. Our program will help you with the most relevant information if you're in the nursing field or are planning to enter the industry. Now, here is your host, Leanne Meyer. Welcome to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing. And I am Leanne Meyer. I'm very happy to invite you to this show and to listen. Um, The title of our show is Transgender Patients Need Affirming Nurses. And that is so very, very true. Perhaps as long as there have been people, there have been people born trapped in a body that does not match their own internal perception of themselves. The difference in today's world is that there is something they can do about it. They can make the very serious, private, and important decision to make the surgical and pharmaceutical changes that help them match their inside idea of self with the external image that others can also perceive. To say this is easy is a great falsehood. To say it is necessary for these individuals is a great understatement. As more come forward to make this significant change in their life, we will need nurses up to the challenge to help these patients feel encouraged, appreciated, and safe to heal. Are you that nurse? My guest today is Shannon Whittington. Excuse me. She is a nurse and um, has certified in LGBT health and is also a transgender health expert in the greater New York City area. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you. I am so happy to be with you today, Leanne. Great, great. I've been looking forward to this too. It's, It's just such a big topic. It's one that's often not touched on at all. And I'm hoping that we can really get to the heart of some of the things that maybe people have questions about. So tell me, first of all, how did you um, come into nursing? And then how did you find your way to caring for transgender patients? Oh, wow. Okay. So that's a really interesting story. Um, I actually grew up, believe it or not, in a nursing home. Um, My aunt was a nurse. She was an LPN, and she worked at this nursing home, and I went to work with her almost every evening at two years old, three years old. I remember sleeping on the couch. I remember giving fake shots and fake pills to the patients. (laughs) They always took their pills and their shots from me. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, I was so just in awe of how she helped people that I made a decision uh, at five years old that I was going to be a nurse too. And uh, that's exactly what I did. It's so amazing how impressionable we are at that age. Mm-hmm. And um, as far as coming into the work that I'm doing now with transgender patients, which I absolutely love, um, honestly, I had a boss that uh, at the time you just could not say no to. <laughs> so mm-hmm. she, she said, uh, hey, they're, they're doing these gender surgeries over at Mount Sinai and uh, go over there and check it out. I, I don't know what, what they're talking about. So I work for the Visiting Nurse Service of New York, and we're like the largest home care agency uh, in the nation. I've worked here for over 20 years, and uh, we provide home care to patients. So Sinai, which is, you know, Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery, CTMS, 
realized the importance of home care with these patients, that they would oh, need yeah. aftercare once they had these surgeries because they're very big surgeries. Uh, and I started learning like that, and it's three and a half years later and um, discovered a new passion I never knew I had, and it's just been a wonderful journey. Oh, that is so fantastic. Um, <clears throat> the story of how you got started as an RN has got to be unique. I can't imagine too many people that could bring their two-year-olds to work with them as a nurse. So uh, that's pretty, well, let me pretty just interesting. Say I, was, I was well-behaved. <laughs> you must have been. You were already uh, studying for your, your boards at the time you were uh, three, four years old, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, one of the things that I've found for myself, but also for other people around me, is that this younger generation is very much and very serious about understanding themselves on a, on a pretty deep, almost, you know, genetic level of who they are um, uh within themselves and how they present themselves to the world. So there's a whole alphabet soup kind of thing that goes with it. And I'm wondering if you could even just the basics of LGBTQ, um, the uh, TGNB, any of the others that you can think of that might not be familiar to people that are listening to us? Yeah, sure. Uh, You know, what's funny is my mom said, says to me a lot. She's like, how could you talk as a nurse if it wasn't for the alphabet? Because every time you talk to another healthcare professional, all you do is say letters. <laughs> so, um, um, so and, and, you know, just so your audience knows, knows this, is that this language is constantly changing. It's evolving. It's very fluid. So right now, uh, LGBTQ plus is lesbian, women who are attracted to women, gay, men who are attracted to men, but some women identify as gay, like myself. I don't really use the word lesbian that much. B is bisexual, meaning attracted to men or women. LGBT, T, transgender, meaning a disagreement with the assigned sex at birth. And it also is an umbrella term for other individuals who may be uh, dressing as women or men and haven't had the surgeries. So it doesn't just mean uh, disagreement with the uh, anatomical body part that they were born with. Q is queer or questioning. Um, You know, queer used to be a derogatory term, but Mm -hmm. has now been turned into a positive term. And then the plus is just covering, you know, everything else. And you may even mm-hmm. find I for intersex, which is the new term for the old term of hermaphrodite. So oh. it's, it's constantly evolving, really. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, especially why it's um, confusing to, especially those of us who have been in the field for a long time, it's just so different. It's like not the kind of thinking we had. I think I mentioned in my program description that uh, we had this seeking for who am I, but it was more of a metaphorical kind of thing. It was def- definitely not on a genetic level. But I have several young friends that this is a very important and very significant question that they're asking. And, of course, dealing with a lot of frustration as um, the majority of people around them are not willing to uh, work with them, even when they say, this is how I see myself. If you love me, you know, um, family and friends, this is how I would like you to refer to me. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm very hopeful, though, Leanne, because 
with this new generation, um, they seem to get it. You know, I think the schools, by and large, are doing a pretty good job with this, with allowing various gender expressions, you know. But when you get into a little bit more mature adults, you know, we see... We see everything through a binary lens, you know, that's how we were brought up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you checked male, you checked female. There wasn't mm-hmm. anything else that you could check. Even for intersex, there wasn't anything to check. And I think if we can look beyond the binary box of male and female, there's so much in between those boxes. It's gender nonconforming. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's non-binary. It's transgender. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a big spectrum between male and female. And I think... If we can just become aware that this exists, uh, allow these individuals to be the best expressions of who they are, which is what every human wants anyway, and, uh, you know, be inclusive with this population because they have a lot to offer. You know, I say that a lot uh, on LinkedIn. I was just posting that this morning. Um, they have an awful lot to, to offer if we look beyond the non-binary, you know, non-conforming boxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And um, we're hiring from the local population, and the local population certainly has uh, a, a wide variety of people in this area. And so as managers are um, uh, talking to their um, uh, applicants that are coming in and talking with them, what are some things that they should know or maybe ask or at least not make assumptions about? Right, so that's the big one, not making assumptions. You mm-hmm. have to go by what the person tells you, not by what you see and not by what you hear. And mm-hmm. that's where you have to slow down your thinking process and simply ask, what is your pronoun? Mm-hmm. Because what is presenting to you could be very non-binary looking, right? In between mm-hmm. male or female, you're not really sure. Don't assume anything. You know, mm-hmm. I spent my entire summer at the uh, CTMS, Center for uh, Transgender Medicine and Surgery at Sinai, and every 30 minutes, a patient was coming in for consultation for mm-hmm. gender-affirming surgery. Every 30 minutes, Leanne. Wow. And, you know, I was, I was new to the subject material. I was new to the population. We're talking about over three and a half years ago now. And, you know, I had unconscious bias. I mm-hmm. assumed that I knew. You know, and you know what? I was wrong almost every single time. But what it taught me was to see people, just see people. Don't see gender, don't see race, don't see female, male, non-female, not any of that. Just see people and go by what they tell you. Because if you think yeah. about like a trans person, many trans individuals' voices are somewhere in between male and female. You know, right. the male voice very deep traditionally, and the female voice is more higher. And a mm-hmm. lot of times, trans people are somewhere in between. So even on the phone, exactly, I was just going to say that. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think we're not as comfortable as we can be by asking pronouns. And I've had people say, "Oh, what's what's with the fuss with all these pronouns these days?" Well, it's showing cultural humility. You know, mm-hmm. it's showing respect to these individuals. That way you're not misgendering someone. You know, it's so interesting because we've been hearing for how many decades now about uh, respecting different cultures, races, um, all of these things. 
Um, and I think that it's come to the point for at least professional people, I hope for the most part, nursing um, has come to realize that, yes, this is a very important thing to do. But when it comes to something we can't see, so we can see their race, we can see, you know, um, maybe, and again, making some assumptions about culture and can be very, very wrong about that. But just if we hold open and say, is there anything about you that I should know to be able to care for you better? That's how I uh, began to uh, deal with all of the unknowns. You know, you couldn't possibly know every culture. You can't possibly know all of what that culture holds. And that particular person may have left whatever their their um, country, their culture, whatever they may have in their own mind, put that behind them. So to make the assumption that that's where they are could be very unsettling for that patient. So this is the same thing. It's just something newer that we haven't heard of as much. Yeah, and I think, you know, trying to get comfortable with the language, being comfortable asking someone about their pronoun. When you ask Mm -hmm. a person about their pronoun, automatically they feel like more connected with you because you're showing some Mm -hmm. respect and humility to them. And then, this is really important too, if you happen to make a mistake, which I have, you know, Mm -hmm. I've done it in public, I've done it in private, apologize, Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to misgender you, and keep it moving. Mm -hmm. Keep the conversation moving. You know, a trans trans man told me that. He said, don't dwell on the fact that you just misgendered me. Simply apologize and keep it moving. I'm not here to talk about being misgendered. I'm here to talk about my health or whatever the situation is. Or a job or whatever it is that they're coming for. I think that's so important. So, Shannon, if I was coming into your office, and at what point in the conversation would you ask me what my pronoun is? Well, when when we get these patients, we have an intake person that goes around and interviews them to see if they want to accept home care. And that's when we determine what the pronoun is. And then we determine what the name is because oftentimes, let's say this is James Jones, okay, uh, who just turned to Jane, uh, in in many instances, the the legal name is still going to be James, right? Uh, Some states, a few states, you still can't change your name legally. You can here in New York. So we want to know the name that you're going by. Just think about it. You just transitioned. You just had surgery. You were just on the Mm -hmm. operating table for four hours. You just right. change your gender. We don't want to misgender you coming there calling you James. Right. So we ask that right away. That's our first, um, what we call our on-site assessment. It's put into our screen so that when I get this information, I already know I'm going to be seeing a Jane whose pronouns are she, her, and hers. Okay. Yeah, that, that would help a lot, especially if it was written right on the chart in some very mm-hmm. um, prominent way so that even if I'm forgetting it as I'm coming up to the patient, I'm thinking in terms of as you're going from one patient to another, say, in post-ICU uh, um, or post-OR, um, to be able to have that reminder, oh, yes, you know, I met this individual coming in, but um, that's not where they're going to be going out. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, let's take a break here and... Um, uh, just kind of uh, uh, re- refresh here a little bit. So what we've started with is the show that, that we're talking here is transgender patients. 
need affirming nurses. And I'm talking with Shannon Whittington, and she spent the last almost four years uh, working with all kinds of different people who are um, translating their um, previous identity into one that matches more their internal identity. So lots of um, interesting conversation here and some questions that come up all the time. And I'm sure some of our our, um, listeners have those questions too. So we will be back in just a couple of minutes. This is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing. I am Leanne Meyer, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv. Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. If you like what you're hearing on Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, consider supporting the show. In the one year since the show started, we've increased our listening audience by nearly 7,900% and our goal to reach 50 countries and counting. Whether you are looking to reach a regional, national, or worldwide audience, you'll have a competitive advantage by advertising on Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. It's the perfect platform. Contact senior executive producer Tacey Trump today at 480-294-6421. That's 480-294-6421. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has a mobile app for iOS, Android, or Amazon Kindle. Visit the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Hi, and welcome back. Thank you for returning with us. This is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing, and I am Leanne Meyer. I'm here today with Shannon Whittington, and we're talking about transgender patients needing affirming nurses. Um, I'm sure they need even a lot more than that. There's probably some very physical and mentally emotional things going on. Shannon, could you walk us through, say, um, a, a client that's coming in Uh, to pre-op, say, and um, what would be some of the things that will happen there? What are some of the surgery options for people? What are some things that nurses need to know as they are having patients coming in for various surgeries? 
Okay, well, it's, it's a process. Um, this patient who's wanting to have surgery has to be at least 18 in most cases. Um, they have to have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, although they are trying to change that in the DSM-5 to gender incongruence. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're diagnosed with that. They have to live in that gender expression for a couple of years. So in other words, Good. if a man is wanting to transition to a woman, they've got to dress like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, you know, to, to, you know, to kind of like make sure, because right. once you go through this, there's not, you know, you can't really put back what you took off or vice versa, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. And then they determine uh, where they want to go and have the surgery. Here in New York, there's a few places they can go to Mount Sinai. They can go to Langone, NYU Langone. There's some other hospitals uh, who are starting to do these surgeries, North Wilmot, if you're all in New York, and then uh, just some independent doctors who are doing certain surgeries like facial feminization and top surgery. Once that's done, they go and have to be uh, evaluated. They have to have two letters saying that they are a good candidate. And, of course, they go through medical clearance like any other patient would. And then they go through the surgery. Um, mm-hmm. Did you want me to talk about what some of the surgeries are? Yeah, if you could, I think that would be helpful. For a lot of us, you know, we are trying to imagine, and, you know, I worked in surgery for a long time, and this is just so very different that um, I think that would be helpful. Okay, well, the majority of our patients are trans women, which means they were men before, and they go in for a vaginoplasty, which is simply a creation of a vagina, vagina which mm-hmm. is basically inverting the penile skin. And this vagina has everything that a native vagina would have. So you've got your labia minora majora, you have your clitoris, you have your meatus, you have your clitoral hood. You also have uh, vaginal depth, you know. So mm-hmm. that's determined based, like if you have a long phallus, you're going to have a longer vaginal depth. If you don't have mm-hmm. a long phallus, penis, uh, they may use, you know, different types of tissues within the body to elongate that more. And this patient comes out, believe it or not, with a beautiful vagina that could make Mm. a cisgender woman jealous. In fact, (laughs) I've had a few nurses say, oh my gosh, can I go see this doctor? (laughs) (laughs) These these, um, neo-vaginas can actually fool a GYN after about a year when all this love has gone down. And they can be orgasmic, which is great. And if they choose to have vaginal penetrative sex, they're able to do that. Mm-hmm. And when, when the nurse goes to see them, we instruct them on dilation and proper dilation and positioning and pain control and all the things you would do on any post-surgical patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, the surgery lasts for about three and a half hours. They have mm-hmm. to dilate, which means they put in a dilator, which is really hard, rigid plastic, and keep that inserted into their vagina but twice a day. It depends on the surgeon, two, three times a day mm-hmm. to prevent the vagina from closing back up, you know, kind of like mm-hmm. an earring, you know, you don't wear your earring sure. close up. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so that's like one of the main surgeries that we see. And then we also have the opposite uh, for trans men who want to have uh, a penis. So they use some of the scrotal skin and... Um, I mean, some of the uh, labia skin to make a uh, penis, you can either have um, a toidioplasty, which is like a junior penis, which is like a small penis, but this allows you to be able to urinate standing up. It gives uh-huh. you some bulk in your 
clothing, uh, you have clitoral lengthening, urethral lengthening, and you also have, uh, you can also have orgasm with this, and less complications with this. This is just someone who wants a little bulk and wants to be able to urinate standing up. Mm-hmm. If you want to go a little bit further, more complicated, then you can have a phalloplasty, which is the creation of a phallus, and um, they can use that in various different ways, either from using a radial forearm phalloplasty, which is taking skin from the radial forearm. They can use it from, you know, like latissimus area, sometimes the thigh. This mm-hmm. one is more complicated um, and done in stages. Or mm-hmm. at the end, you have your urethral hookup and you have uh, scrotoplasty done where they implant uh, with like little testicles, you know. So, mm-hmm. but... With these bottom surgeries, there's a high uh, revision rate, and it's not oh. always because of complications. A lot of times it's for cosmetic reasons, mm-hmm. uh, and that, that's nationwide pretty much. And then we also see a lot of revisions for patients who have gone to other places and really gotten some botched-up jobs. You know, I was speaking down mm-hmm. in Florida last month, and I had so many trans patients older coming to me saying, you know, oh, yeah. I, I, I'm all messed up. I'm all messed up. Can you help me? You know, it's, it's kind of sad. And is that possible to revise what had been done, you know, many, many years ago? Sometimes they can. It depends on how much tissue was left. Um, depends on a lot of things. Uh, I do know that I've seen Dr. King up here, Dr. Bluebond, Dr. Zhao, Dr. Pang, Dr. Avanesian do some amazing work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes, no, you know, and that, that, that's the sad part. Um, so those are the bottom surgeries. And then, uh, and those are covered by mostly all insurances here in New York. You know, when I was in Florida, they mm-hmm. were telling me, oh, it's not covered here. But in New mm-hmm. York, it's covered. Then we have top surgery. And this can either be for chest masculinization or for feminization. So uh, basically a boob job, right, if you Mm -hmm. want to be a girl. Or you have sort of like a mastectomy if you Mm -hmm. want to be a boy. And the way they position the areola, you know, really mimics a cis male's chest. Mm -hmm. And then a Mm -hmm. boob job, you know, looks like a boob job. So uh, we take care of those patients as well. I mean, if you think about chest masculinization with removing the breast, a lot of times these patients bind themselves, you mm-hmm. know, because they don't want to show that they have breasts. So this is very liberating for, for mm-hmm. these patients. And having for clothing well, and, and even like going swimming or something like that. Yes. And then once mm-hmm. the pecs develop, that incision just folds right under there. Um, and it looks, I mean, so many times mm-hmm. you just can't. Health, yeah. You know. Well, surgery has been, you know, getting better and better all the time. And, you know, scars are much less obvious um, in most, you know, situations. So it would make sense that that would be the same there. So now um, this patient is arriving in post-op care. And what does a nurse then um, need to know and need to be looking for? Okay. Uh, well, we do have one more surgery, Leanne. Do you want, want me to talk oh, about Oh, I'm that? sorry. Go ahead. Please do. No problem. We have uh, what's called facial feminization surgery. Mm. So these are trans women. They have like a rhinoplasty. Uh, they may have fat injected. They have their jaw, line, and chin smoothed out. They have their fore- 
head, you know, the fur hair in the, in the front pulled forward, the brow mm-hmm. bone um, shaved down, and they look beautiful. Again, I have the nurses asking me, can they go see this doctor? <laughs> so those are the three patients that we get. And so what happens after the patient has the surgery, they go into the unit, and it is dependent upon mm-hmm. what surgery they have determines how long they stay there. Then they go to their room, and then, like I said, we go see them, and then they're discharged home. So if they're discharged today, we would go see them tomorrow, and we base our visit frequency on the need, uh, the doctor's orders, and the insurance approval. Okay. So this has been going on long enough that there's actually a process um, yeah. Do you know? Yeah. Do you have any idea how many states are involved in doing this um, kind of work? And like you said, that um, insurance doesn't pay for it in every state. Um, is there any like percentage of how many states are doing are paying for it? You know, I don't know about the other states. Um, I do participate in the in the Mount Sinai Surgical Conference uh, every year, and I meet a lot of surgeons. From all over the country, I know California does a lot, um, Massachusetts does a lot, um, but I don't know about, you know, I think Chicago, but I'm not really sure about specifically. Um, mm-hmm. I know here in New York, like CTMS does over 3,000 procedures. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's amazing, you know, how many people are wanting these procedures done. Yeah. Another thing that's been coming up a lot lately is the whole um, military aspect, where I know that um, some uh, um, laws or rules in the military that were um, trying to be changed were indicating that these were very expensive um, military personnel, that they needed a lot of health care and surgeries were very, very expensive, etc. Is there truth to that? Well, the surgery uh, is expensive to the insurance company, you know, but mm-hmm. every surgery is expensive to the insurance company. Sure. I'm just happy that they are covered. I mean, you know, you have patients who can't afford to go out of the country and have this procedure done or they're saving up mm-hmm. all of their money, you know, to try and do it and, and, and really coming back. Like, there's some places... Uh, you know, outside of the U.S. that are doing great work, but there's mm-hmm. also some places that aren't, you know, yeah. and then you run the risk of having a complication and having to have a revision mm-hmm. because of that. So, Would you say most complications hand, happen then right after surgery or within the first few months um, that perhaps there would be less complications as they um, become more uh, accustomed to their transference? Yeah, I mean, as time progresses, it's better and better. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. the main thing that we may see would be like urinary retention, uh, bleeding, um, vaginal closure, you know, those Mm -hmm. type of things. But uh, which is great about having the home care nurse there, you know, Mm -hmm. because we can teach the patient what to look out for and what not to be alarmed about. I mean, you think about... These patients come home with backs and foleys and JP drains and yeah. packing and curlax and, you know, all kind of things mm-hmm. coming out of their body. I mean, just imagine that right. if you're not in this, you know, field, very overwhelming. The anxiety mm-hmm. is just through the roof. 
so that's what's so well, good about having a knowledgeable caregiver come. And I would think that um, uh, going into the surgery, a lot of the thinking would be around just the surgery itself. And um, I think sometimes as an OB nurse, so many times women would come in to, or parents in general would come in to have this baby. And once the baby is born, it's like, phew, we had the baby, but they hadn't really thought about anything after. So they didn't know if they were breastfeeding. They didn't know, you know, um, all kinds of other things that you would normally think they would also be thinking of as it goes along. But um, there's always a few people that, that have that. So that must be a real shock um, if that was not something they were expecting. What kind of yeah, um, teaching happens for them prior to their surgery? They, they actually get a lot of preparation, oh. you know, um, and I've, I've seen that myself of what mm-hmm. to expect. But we, we know, and you know, it's, you know, I used to work on a transplant floor. Um, the patient was so excited about getting the liver. They forgot right. the part about taking the medications for the rest of their lives and the biopsies, right. you know, and yeah. this is, very similar, I find, with this population. They're taught, you know, you have to dilate. This is very important. And then the nurse goes to see the patient, and the patient says, oh, I don't feel like it. It's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And that's when we're really needed because we have to reinforce right. that teaching. And a lot of times they'll say, no one ever told me that, you know, but we mm-hmm. know that they did. They just, yeah. They're so excited. They've waited a year or yeah. longer. Or longer, yeah. Or yeah, some of them have waited, you know, from, you know, I just had a person on LinkedIn today tell me I knew I was supposed to be a girl when I was three. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's stories of little boys at six, year old, six years old trying to cut off their penis. Yeah. So, Oh, my gosh. You know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad to hear that the surgery has been, um, uh, I don't know, perfected because nothing is ever perfect but uh, improved to the point that um, it can be satisfying for uh, an individual that, you know, you finally get this change. But um, if you feel like you're still not being all of the woman that you want to be or all of the man that you want to be, I could see that would be very, very frustrating. So um, suggestions for nurses. Um, uh, I, I know sometimes that in OB obstetrics, I had gotten to the point where I sort of knew what to anticipate with different people and to make sure I was bringing up because I was pretty sure they were not going to bring it up. And that could be people with um, English as a second language or, you know, different things like that. So we have just a couple of minutes here. Um, Do you want to take, say, five minutes and talk about this and then we'll go on break after? Oh, sure. Okay. Um, I think it's really important to um, meet the patient where they are. And I know we say that a lot as nurses, but, and I also want to say that see the patient as a patient first and not a transgender patient. Right. Because these patients don't lead with being trans, you know, they really want to be seen as a woman or a man or whatever it is that they're, you know, transitioning to. Not, oh, I've got a trans patient coming in or I have a trans woman coming in. Do you have to mention that in your notes? Absolutely. But that patient might be coming to you because they have a cold, you know. Mm-hmm. The patient might be coming to you because they have a stomach ache. It has mm-hmm. nothing to do with being trans. So just being open to the fact that the person who happens to be trans and then feeling comfortable asking 
what the pronoun is. And Mm -hmm. once you start to ask this, you'll find that it gets easier and easier. Mm -hmm. You know, I I do a lot of training, and I'll have people say, is it okay to ask that? Yeah, I feel Mm -hmm. kind of weird asking that, but, you know, don't assume anything. And that's all, mm-hmm. that's a good rule of thumb, good rule of thumb in life anyway, right? Don't assume yes. anything. You know, and, you and that, know. that might be needed for anybody coming in for a cholecystectomy or, um, you know, anything else that they might be coming in for to have that be one of the first questions that you ask. Um, people that don't know what it means will just say, what? Or, huh? Or whatever. And, and just, you know, the nurse could, I think, um, explain that it's a new question that we're asking because for many people, they don't necessarily appear the way that they want to be seen. Yeah, I think that's, you know, we, we, we teach like you wouldn't call an older person queer. That would be mm-hmm. offensive. Um, uh-huh. I wouldn't ask an older person in their 70s, you know, I don't want to say they're older, but you know, what's mm-hmm. your pronoun? They're going to look at you like you, like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really important. You know, I had a nurse call me last night, and she admitted a patient for um, cellulitis. And the patient was transgender. And so mm-hmm. she read that, but she knew she wasn't going there to see that patient for anything about being transgender. She was going to see that patient about cellulitis. And that's how she addressed that patient. Mm-hmm. And after the visit was over, the patient told her, oh, my gosh, it's the first time I've ever felt normal in <sighs> front of a nurse, you know. Wow. And this is one of the nurses that I had trained, and we can talk about that after the break, what that was like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a, a, good, a good suggestion, and I think this is a really good place to take a break. So um, this is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. And our topic today is Transgender Patients Needing Affirming Nurses. And I'm here with Shannon Whittington, who um, has just been uh, um, so much information and, and very straightforward and very helpful. So we will be back in just a couple of minutes and continue our conversation. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. If you like what you're hearing on Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, consider supporting the show. In the one year since the show started, we've increased our listening audience by nearly 7,900% and our goal to reach 50 countries and counting. Whether you are looking to reach a regional, national, or worldwide audience, you'll have a competitive advantage by advertising on Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. It's the perfect platform. Contact Senior Executive Producer Tacey Trump today at 480-294-6421. That's 480-294-6421. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Thank you, and welcome back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. This is Leanne Meyer. I'm here with Shannon Whittington, who is an expert in caring for transgender patients and um, has done a lot of teaching uh, and learning over the last three and a half to four years. Um, I'm thinking, uh, Shannon, that this might be an excellent time to talk about as if there are organizations out there that are trying to put... Um, plans in place on how they're going to deal with these things or how, you know, will they have specific units, which which nurses will be trained, do all nurses get trained? Could you address that? And then maybe what are some of the barriers when they start trying to uh, implement this kind of care? Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, well, I know there are organizations out there who are wanting to implement them because some of them have reached out to me. Mm-hmm. And it's been very heartwarming that they are, in fact, interested in this. You know, um, even though I'm a part of this community, right, I identify as a gay woman, I didn't know mm-hmm. anything about trans three and a half mm-hmm. years ago. Uh, I'm yeah. embarrassed to say that. Um, I wasn't taught in school. The average nursing student gets about 2.12 hours of training in LGBT. If that uh, I received mm. zero hours. Mm-hmm. How many hours did you get, Leanne? Nothing. In 1973, it wasn't even a concept. I had no idea that there was such um, such a person. And it turns out yeah. they've been around for decades and decades and decades. Yeah. So it's not like all of a sudden people just decide to be trans. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and that's what, that's what people think. Oh, where'd all these trans people come from? They've been here all along. You know, but if you've watched any news story, you know that it's not safe in many places of the country. Yes. We've already had like 18 murders in the United States yes. already. Um, so, Crazy. and we won't even get into these women of color being murdered mm-hmm. on a regular basis. So, mm-hmm. and I, I speak to students now, like I have a, a nursing student now. She's getting ready to graduate. I asked her, 
you know, how much training did you get on this? And she said, none. Uh, none. Uh-huh. And, but, you know, I know it's changing. I just gave a lecture at Columbia School of Nursing a couple of months ago. Uh, NYU does a lot of stuff. And, and there are, you know, organizations and uh, schools that are starting to do this. But even if it's just 101, yeah, mm-hmm. just 101, mm-hmm. pronouns, yeah. name, don't assume, it's just the basics, cultural sensitivity, that's a start. Yeah. That's a start. Exactly. And, you know, when we first started this, you know, I just have to be honest with you. It wasn't like nurses were knocking down my door asking right. to be trained. You know, did a few mm-hmm. come forth and say, hey, Shannon, I want to learn about it? Absolutely. But a mm-hmm. lot said no. A lot said no. One nurse said to me, mm-hmm. Shannon, I'll do anything for you, but I won't do that. Mm-hmm. You know? And so fast forward to today, uh, we've taken care of over 400 patients. That very mm-hmm. same nurse came mm-hmm. to me uh, several months ago and said, you know, I've been thinking about that training you're doing, Shannon, and let's be clear, I don't agree with it, mm-hmm. but I'm a nurse, mm-hmm. and I should be able to take care of any patient, no matter right. what surgery they've had. So exactly. now, if you remember me referenced the patient with cellulitis, that was her, you know? Oh, okay. Now she's had... Three or four patients, uh, she's had three vaginoplasty patients, trans women who've got new vaginas, and she came up to me a while back and she said, Shannon, I get it. I get it. She really should have been a girl. So Mm. I'm not trying to convert anyone's thinking. Mm -hmm. We all know that you can't legislate people's hearts, but I am here to alert you as nurses. This is not going away, you know? It behooves mm-hmm. us to learn how to take care of this population, whether you agree with it or not. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Just leave your values or your, your, your judgment yeah. outside the door when you go to take care of these patients. Um, I'd like to share just uh, an experience that I had. Uh, my first experience with a trans woman um, was in my 20s. So I had just graduated from nursing school. I had very little experience, um, the experience I had. I actually had an experience as a new grad RN, and I didn't know that's what it was, Uh, a gentleman that came in on my um, surgical floor and uh, went to surgery and had all of his teeth removed. And I had no idea. I mean, his teeth were fine. They were healthy. There was nothing, you know, no reason that I knew of why somebody would have all their teeth removed. But it was to be able to have dentures that were feminine looking. And so that was like my very first toe in the water kind of experience. And I had no idea where that was coming from. And then just kind of forgot all about it. And maybe 10 years later, uh, I encountered um, a trans woman in a very close situation where I was going to continue to interact with her over and over again. And I'm not proud to say that I was furious with this individual because my feeling was that I was experiencing them as a man, and they were trying to make me uncomfortable to experience them as a female. And I felt like that was rude and uncalled for. Mm -hmm. And I mean, all these things in my head, because it was going to be difficult for me to try and have compassion for this person and what it was they wanted in their life, as opposed to what I, who had nothing to do with it, wanted Mm -hmm. for you know, in my interactions with them. And I'm so grateful that it was years later, but I was able to go back and apologize. And, you know, as often happens, because I'm sure they get this kind of 
reaction from a lot of people. Um, you know, she took it almost as, you know, oh, nothing, you know, the, the thank you for, for apologizing. Not, I've never had anybody do that. But um, mm-hmm. I've been able to be much closer to her in my interactions with her now because I just have a whole different feeling about it. And then I also had a friend that um, I knew as a woman, and he tra- transitioned into being a man. And the the difference, I, I helped him take take him to a number of the surgeries that he went to. And the difference in his um, calmness, his wholeness, his, I mean, to me now, I, it's hard for me to even think of him as anything other than um, a man. But his family still struggles to call him by his male name, as opposed to the female name. So I know that it still, you know, is, is difficult for a lot of people. But I just want to put that out there as I'm not judging other people who have these difficult feelings. Um, mm-hmm. It's a new concept. It's a whole new thing to us. And as human beings, as well as being nurses, we're going to have lots of conflict. And it's okay to acknowledge the conflict. But I think like your nurse that you talked about, we have to come back. I'm a nurse. This is a patient. Mm-hmm. I need to interact with this person just as I would with anyone else, compassionately, um, caring with my knowledge, with with all of the things that the encouragement that I would bring to any other patient. Yeah, I mean, so true. I mean, if you think about it, these patients have anticipated stigma from us because that's right. what they've gotten, you know. So mm-hmm. when they meet a healthcare professional that doesn't do that, they can't believe it. You know, the patients just latch on to the nurse here, like, amazing, because they're like, wow, you know, because we're providing gender-affirming care, you know, Mm -hmm. and now nurses are coming to me saying, I I want to be trained. I want to take care of these patients. And some of the nurses Mm -hmm. that were very resistant have even come to me and said, can I just take care of trans patients? I love this population so much. (laughs) So if, if any organization out there is thinking about it, you know, Kudos to you. Yes, you will meet resistance internally and externally, but I just Mm -hmm. kept plowing away and I just kept plowing away and doing my thing and slowly, slowly, slowly things started to turn around here. And we still have work to be done. I'm not going to lie about that, but Mm -hmm. I've trained over 200 nurses now, you know, and I'm very proud of that. Yeah, that, that is a significant, if you do nothing else in your life, that is a significant uh, mission to have accomplished and to have left the world with. Um, anything else, as we're getting, we're getting pretty close to the end of the show, and I wondered if there's anything else you would like to make sure that nurses know worldwide about this particular topic? Well, there's like lots of uh, resources available. If if you don't mm-hmm. know, there's US PATH, US PATH, United States uh, Association of Transgender Health, and there's WPATH, the World you know Association of Transgender Health. There's the Finway Institute out of Boston, F E N W A Y. Um, there's Sage, you know, S A G E for certification uh, with elderly LGBT. Uh, individuals. So there's a lot of resources out there. Um, you can also follow me on LinkedIn. I post a lot about that. You can DM me on LinkedIn. I work for the Visiting Nurse, Serv- Visiting Nurse Service of New York, Gender Affirmation Program. Uh, that's pretty much all over the web too. So um, there's some supportive services that are available. 
Great. That's really good. Um, how about support services for the patients that are um, trans- transitioning? Well, they have support groups for them, um, and they meet, you know, I just left an organization uh, this morning that has something every third Monday where they all get together and just socialize, and, you know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of uh, organizations that are doing things like that to include them and to sort of introduce them to each other without violating any type of HIPAA um, mm-hmm. so that uh, they feel like they have a support system. They are covered with, uh, you know, um, therapy, things like that. So it's not like they're just out there on their own. Mm-hmm. That That's really great. Um, that would be, you know, my other concern is, you know, they, they get to the stage where they, they look the way they want to look, but there's got to be still so many unfinished things, and family might be the, the biggest one that comes to mind. So, you know, encouraging people to even do some family therapy, if that's a possibility. Um, you know, family is just so crucial to everybody's life. There's a reason we were born into the family that we were born into. I used to say, no way, that is not true. <laughs> I I don't know how I got together with this family. But now as I've gotten older, <laughs> I've decided they're, they're probably exactly the right people for me. Um, and, and hopefully I'm the right person to be in their family. And, and I would think that this is also true for transgender. So... Um, I, I just really want to thank you, Shannon, for coming and just in such a forthright and uh, open way, being able to share some of this information that is um, confusing for people, whether they're in, you know, the LGBTQ um, arena or people like myself who are not and are really just trying to catch up and trying to learn as fast as we can. So I, I do appreciate you being able to be on and for us to be able to have this conversation. Um, maybe we will have you come back again sometime. Oh, that would be great because there's a whole other topic about the social determinants of health with this population. But I really appreciate the opportunity to share uh, what little I know and just to have this platform to talk about it, it's been a true honor, Leanne. Thank you so very much. Anybody out there listening, um, can they contact you if they have questions? Sure. Like I said, we on have LinkedIn, about 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Shannon Whittington at uh, LinkedIn. I'm all over LinkedIn <laughs> talking okay. about this stuff. All right. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. Um, I hope this was helpful to you also. This is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing. I'm Leanne Meyer, and I will talk with you again next week. Thank you for listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with your host, Leanne Meyer. Be sure to join us again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a productive and insightful week.